I'm trying to figure out if there's a way to say this not so insulting. <laughs> I'm really tired of walking in classrooms and saying the same thing. That's fine. Okay. My name is Casey Bratcher, and I'm an advocate for student thought. Let me do it again. What I'm trying to do is actually... <laughs> See, look at me. I'm going to already get in <clears throat> Can we just tell them what the name of the podcast is? Yeah, no. You're listening to Rebels and Risk Takers. Find that difference between showing the students that you're an expert and trying to make them experts. Let's start from the very beginning. So for me, uh, I started off in, in college when I first got there. Not sure what my major would be, uh, taking a couple of required courses in the beginning. And then uh, being on the football team, I noticed that uh, a lot of guys were struggling with uh, particular uh, math classes, basic math classes, college math classes, and uh, I had a knack for helping them. So I decided to get into just uh, mathematics. And then from there, um, it grew into tutoring guys on the football team. And uh, one, one guy told me that I had a way of explaining it that uh, the professors didn't. So he would always come to me and that, that stuck with me. So once I graduated, I decided that I wanted to be a math teacher to help kids um, and explain to kids things that maybe um, they didn't understand and maybe explain to them in a different way. Cool. What about you, Lamario? Um, for me, um, I didn't necessarily go the education route in college. I was actually, I had just graduated from college and I was um, studying for my LSATs. And um, actually not my now mother-in-law, she was a teacher. And, you know, we were, we were getting to know each other pretty well and she wanted me to come volunteer at a school. And um, volunteering with the school, it was more of a thing to where she's wanted me to come just sit in and be a role model, kind of tutor. But it started from there, and then she actually gave me a job actually teaching an after-school program. So I slowly started to kind of like develop kind of just a love for being there, just helping students and um, really working with a certain population of students. Then at, from the after-school program, they actually asked me to come in and teach like during the day and during some classes. And then from there, going into that next year, I actually just applied for Teach for America. And I got into Teach for America here in Miami, and I was based here in Miami. Um, and then from Teach for America, you know, it's only a, supposed to be a two-year commitment. Some people choose to stay. Some people choose to um, leave, go on to other things. But going into, like, my second year, even my first year, I just really started to fall in love with teaching and fall in love with, like, you know, just my students and um, just the environment and being, falling in love with just helping students in general, helping them see things in different ways. Um, so that, you know, that bond eventually kind of grows. And from there, it was the thing to where when I was supposed to leave after my second year, it was like, no, I'll do one more year. And then from there, it was just like, no, I just... I think education is where I should be at. So, so you guys really, you, you both started in the realm of tutoring folks, which I imagine, you know, you were early on working with people who were struggling with math or who didn't like math or who didn't want to do math. And that's what inspired you. That piece of it is what inspired you to go and do it as a career. That's really awesome. Caught in this cycle of teaching the way we were taught. Today, I really want to dig into this idea of rebelling against the traditional math classroom where kids sit in rows and columns and teachers are doing all the work. And I know when I first started teaching, I was a master at the traditional classroom. I mean, I was so good at it. And for the first really four years of my teaching career, I thought it was really for sure the thing to do. My students were well-behaved, our test scores were pretty good. I had fun every day at school. I'm not sure they did, but I had a lot of fun. 
And ultimately for the first four years of my teaching career, I think I taught that way because that's all I knew. That's how I was taught. That's the way I learned when I was in school and I didn't really know there was another way. So I'm wondering, what did your classroom look like those first few years of teaching? What, what were you caught in that same trap, if you will, of teaching the way that you were taught? And it, did it look like the traditional kind of rows and columns classroom? I would say yes, because um, we were all taught a certain way. And, you know, since we learned math this way, we said, okay, this is the way I learned it. So this is the way I'm going to teach. It's kind of like when you, you have kids and you become a parent, you, you do those things that your yeah. parents did to you. And then you say, you know, I'm not going to do these things that I didn't necessarily like, but I'm going to add this instead. So, so for me, uh, growing up, it was more so like you didn't do this it was that hard punishment so when I grew when I had my own kids it was more so like okay I'm gonna talk to you the first time after that there's no more talking so my my teaching style is similar so uh, I started off in, in rows and columns and then I, I realized that you know um, I was introduced to Carnegie it's my second year in teaching and I said to myself there's no way that a computer math program can show kids how to learn to teach them how to do math and from that um, I had three of my classes that I taught and three of my classes that was Carnegie Learning and it was doing this uh, the trial period um, down in Miami-Dade County and so uh, my kids were, were learning there was reading there was writing uh, they was able to read a passage and pull out the equation and so I had to learn one hard lesson early on was I had to learn to get out of the way. And that's mm -hmm. one of the hardest things as a teacher is when you think you're supposed to give them everything. And I learned through Carnegie early that, you know what, I can give this them this assignment and they can do it and they can work on it. And I don't have to guide them every step of the way. So my third year of teaching, I, I went full on into Carnegie because I was like, okay, I like how these kids are talking. They're working together, they're getting to know each other, and I don't always have to be the master of giving that instruction. So I, I did like that. I would say my classroom started off in a, a very similar way and rows and columns. Um, because you know that's the way you if you grew up learning that way, that's what you grew up seeing, and even just a direct instruction of, all right, here's what we're doing today. Let me teach you how to do this skill. You guys want to practice this skill. You know, you guys should get it because I taught a great lesson. I know I taught a great lesson. <laughs> I hurt myself while I was teaching, and I sounded great. <laughs> so it's like initially just coming in, like especially year one, really getting over that and thinking about how great—not just how great you sound, but did you hit all the points that you planned for? Did you cover all your examples you wanted to cover? All right, cool. You got a chance to do that. Like great lesson, and not really taking into account like the students' feedback or even giving them a chance to give feedback about how they like to learn or do they, are they even comfortable in this environment. Um, I think for me, when I started um, switching into kind of groups similar to what Reggie said, um, but my first year was with Carnegie Learning and you can't do that without the collaboration or students collaborating. You can't efficiently facilitate a lesson without that. And jumping into that, of course, just like it always feels like a big risk and going into it, you don't think that uh, your students will understand what you're doing, or you may not think that your students will be able to sit and have these intellectual conversations, or just not even intellectual conversations, but just conversations in general without uh, causing disruption. And it feels like a little bit of organized chaos, at least for me at first, but once I realized that it's chaos, but it was organized, 
they were actually talking, they were actually discussing, and they were actually having better conversations about the math than they would, which is me asking them one-on-one -on -one questions when they're with their peers. It kind of changes the way I think that you see things just going forward and really changes how you, your, your perception of how kids learn or the best way that students actually learn. You brought up a good point about uh, teaching and you heard yourself talk. You know, uh, one of my biggest frustrations early on was I would, I would teach a lesson and then I would give them a quiz and, and not many of the kids will pass. And immediately I would say, oh my gosh, I'm not a good teacher because these kids didn't pass. And then what I've learned through my years is that um, that's not necessarily true. It, it only means that they didn't, there's a disconnect between what I taught and what they're getting or what they understand. And it took me a while to go back and learn that just because you taught it, that don't mean that they learn, right? Exactly. I had to modify the way that I, that I talked to the kids, the way that I, what my expectation was. And it, and it took me a while to realize like, what is the purpose of the grade? What is the grade for? And then if, the, if this grade is for me to know what they know, is there other ways for them to show me what they know? And that took a long time for me to kind of understand and stop blaming myself and understand that kids learn differently. Yep. So I, I, I agree head on with what you said. Yeah, I got caught in that trap too, thinking that, you know, teaching the way that I taught in the beginning was the way that I should teach because I got it that way. You know, I was, I was perfectly successful at copying the teacher and doing what they did 25 times on a worksheet. I was really great at that. Um, and I made the assumption, I think, when I first started teaching that if I did that way really well, then they would all get it. But they weren't getting it. And I was critical of myself at first, too. Like, oh, what am I doing wrong? And it hit me that probably only about five or six percent of them actually learn the same way that I do. And if I was really honest with myself, I needed to create different experiences because there were lots of different ways that kids were going to learn, not necessarily just like me. And some of them just on different timetables too, really. It was, it was just going to take some of them a little more time than others and to learn yeah. some things. And I think that's one of the, like one of the best things once you first recognize that you're trying something different and it's working, like you can even see it in the kids' faces, whether it's, all right, I just did this um, interactive activity to where I wasn't the stage on a stage and the students just working in groups, just talking. Like there's a different feel and it creates like a different environment, I think, within the classroom. And I think students pick up yeah. on it, just pick up on it, it just makes like the classroom feel a little more alive to me. Results drive rebellion. Reggie, you mentioned earlier that you, that, well, that Carnegie Learning came to your school. I'm assuming that wasn't because you chose that. It sounded like you were not a believer at first and that you were part of some experiment or research thing. Um, so you were sort of forced at least to see a different way first. Would, would you agree with Lamario that once you saw some things happening differently in your classroom with kids, that was sort of what swayed you over to the rebel side? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the results. So once I saw kids, um, and, and I wasn't big back then, we, you know, we had the state test, the FCAT. So I wasn't big on really knowing what the FCAT results and all that meant. But once I saw kids reading a paragraph, taking the math out of that paragraph and solving an equation, for me, that did it. Because I'm like, they're reading the math, they're writing about the math, and then they're explaining 
what they did. And back then, Carnegie textbooks were, you know, it was it was a big binder, and then the computers were all big stationary computers in the class. And I wasn't a big fan at first. I was like, you know what? I don't think this works. You know, I'm 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 kind of I'm laughing now because I'm kinda, back then I'm like I'm old school. I'm traditional. This is, I think, the way the kids should learn and rows and columns. And you guys are telling me to put them in groups and let them talk and use a computer. Well, this is not math. But when I saw the results and I saw how the kids responded, then I had to learn. That's when I said I had to get out of the way. I had to say, yeah. you know, but what's better for these kids? And, you know, I thought I was a, an, an exceptional teacher. I thought I was the best teacher ever. I thought if I taught it, you should learn it. But then again, my frustration was I would give a test or a quiz, and then I wouldn't see the results that I was expecting. However, when I switched over to that learning style, which wasn't easy, it wasn't an easy switch, so it took some time for me to kind of get used to it. But once I did, I mean, my kids' scores went up, and it was nothing extra on my part. And so people would say, oh, you got great scores, your kids, what are you doing? Uh, that's why I went from three classes of me teaching to all six with Carnegie and using it in that way, you know, using that pedagogy where the kids see a problem, they explain it, they work with each other, and they come up with the answer. And not all the answers were correct, just the thinking of it. So when Common Core came about, everybody was scrambling, like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And as I was looking and reading, I'm like, I don't have to do anything. This is exactly what I've been doing in my classes. I remember thinking the yeah. same thing. Yeah, yeah. it's like, you know what, what What do you mean? What do I do? It's, I don't have to do anything. These are the things I've been doing in my classes anyway. Eight mathematical practices. Yeah, these are things that I do in my classes anyway. All right, so, the posters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, it, just, it, just, it just made it um, easier, mm -hmm. easier. The key elements of a rebellious classroom. You know, we all three taught with Carnegie Learning Materials, but I would say that they aren't the silver bullet. You don't necessarily have to have Carnegie Learning Materials to make, you know, that this kind of learning to, to rebel against a traditional classroom. What advice would you guys give teachers or, or what kinds of things should teachers be trying to do if they don't have our resources? Maybe describe what it looks like in a rebellious classroom with or without Carnegie Learning Resources. What are, what are those key things that need to be happening? So I'm glad you said that, Casey. When you walk into a classroom, you should hear, uh, you should see students working together. You should see um, maybe a small group over here using technology. You should see a teacher with a small group or maybe one-on-one -on -one with a couple of kids. And then you should see other students in groups and they're working together to solve a problem. And no matter what material you use, the math is the math. And the, the, what you want to hear is that student discourse. You want to hear the students talking about, wait, how did you get that? This is what I got. This is how I got that. Okay, then how did you get that? And when you have a, a, a classroom like that, then that's when you know that the learning is taking place. That's when you can hear it. You can see it. You know, if there was a smell, you could smell it. You can you can tell that they were working as a group to get this stuff done. And, and you know, it made me, when I walk into classrooms like that, you can tell the difference in the student's success. Yeah. And I'll also add one thing, just seeing also the teacher stepping back is more kind of a facilitator than being that primary um, just giver of learning. And even just seeing the teacher as a facilitator, you, you kind of get 
when you walk into a class, sometimes you may get lost. You, I say you can't find them, but they will be more kind of in the mix. You'll see them within the conversations, either questioning or just observing or um, clarifying through questioning, not necessarily just giving um, answers to students. But like Reggie said, I think student discourse is always a, a biggie for me and student discourse and just collaboration. I think those two are um, a, a real biggie and seeing and being more student-centered just in general. Yeah. I think I eventually realized that I really needed to focus on two big things when it came to shifting or um, rebelling against the traditional rows and columns classroom. The first one was really about choosing the right task. You know, I think I, I realized at some point that I needed to make sure that I was giving students a task that actually required collaboration and critical thinking. Um, otherwise, there would be really nothing to think about or nothing to talk about. So. Um, if I was going to put them in groups of four, but give them the same worksheet with 25 practice problems where they just copied me, then there wasn't going to even be much of an opportunity for rich mathematical discourse, which is what I was trying to create. I, so I had to start choosing rigorous high level mathematical tasks if I wanted them to really think and discuss during class. And that was really, really difficult to start as well. Um, and I failed a few times more than a few times, I think, before I, I started getting that right. The second big thing I had to focus on, and you both really alluded to this already, was that I needed to create a safe space where my students were allowed to problem solve together, to make mistakes, to share their thinking. So it wasn't just enough to give them the right mathematical task, but also create a space where they were willing to think critically, collaborate with each other, share their thinking, even if it wasn't all the way there yet, or they were wrong on the wrong track, just really, you know, a space where I wasn't constantly taking over to teach and show, but instead was orchestrating their learning via the experiences that I was providing for them. And then the conversations I was trying to orchestrate throughout the class period. But but that all started with, you know, well, if I didn't choose the right task, it all started there, then the collaboration and discourse were never going to happen. I definitely agree with that. I think that was something that initially I probably struggled with too with collaboration, um, picking the right task, because I would actually, when I first started, okay, you guys are sitting in groups, you're gonna work on this, this in groups, this worksheet, you wanna do these, solve out these 20 proportions, you guys can divide it any way you want to, but just solve them we'll come back and talk about them. And like you said, there was like with just giving straight skill or just a, a worksheet, it may not, there may not really need to collaborate. So they won't probably naturally collaborate, but are you choosing the right task that's going to allow them to be able to work together and to talk and actually have a discussion about what they're doing? And then if not, and on the opposite side of that, it was for me, I always question, all right, can I get, well, they, can they do this task? If it's too rigorous, is this task too rigorous for them to do? And without taking that risk, like you don't really know. Rebelling is risky. And also our students know way more than we give them credit for. Yeah, it's very risky. You're right. I, I remember the first, the, the first thing I tried, it was actually a Carnegie learning task. It was the U.S. shirts task, which I know you guys are familiar with, but if you're not familiar with it, um, it requires students to make sense of this pattern that's happening where they're buying t-shirts. And they have to informally describe the pattern and then create a table of values that represents the situation. And then they have to graph that table of values. And they also have to write a formal equation. Like it's a ton of stuff all in one lesson. And it's the beginning of the school year. 
And I remember saying to my coach at the time, how are they going to know how to graph it if I haven't shown them how to graph yet? I mean, that literally came out of my mouth. And she was like, mm, mm, why don't you give them a chance and then get back with me on how they fare? And so I, it was this huge risk for me. And initially I made the assumption that, well, they're never going to be able to do this. And they completely surprised me. Like they blew my socks off. Now there were certainly a few groups that got the X and Y axes backwards the first time they graphed or um, they didn't maybe get all the way to writing the formal equation, but the number of things that they were in general able to do that I assumed they couldn't do up front was insane. And there was at least one group in every class that could write the equation. That group then became the teacher that day. They got to share their work with the rest of the class um, and, and explain how they got to that. And certainly kids um, hearing from other kids works a whole lot better than just me lecturing them. So it was a risk for me, but it was magical in the end. And, and we willing to admit as teachers that probably our students know a lot more or at least able to give a try to a lot more than we think they will or that they can. And we can't, we can't hold them back according to what we think. And U.S. has 18 mathematical concepts that was involved in that. And you're saying, oh my gosh, my kids don't know how to do this and don't know how to do that. But if you give it to them and you see that they're working together, you'd be like, oh my gosh, I didn't think you could, but um, and then you start to see that they can. So uh, that was one of the ones. And like you say, choosing the task was the biggest part. I used to give everybody the same task. And then I realized that, hey, maybe this group can have the first part of that task. And this group could, could definitely come up with the equation of that. And so it kind of then started putting, you know, back then, uh, what do we call it? Where we puzzle it all together, uh, you jigsaw. know, jigsaw. jigsaw. Yeah, so it was like, okay, I'm gonna have this group do this part, this group do this part, and this group. And then I had one group that I knew could handle it. Well, you gotta read the first three questions and answer those in order to do your part. So. I actually gave them more rigor in their problem. And it was amazing to see them like, you know, do it and then get ready to present it. So that's what kind of changed the way, you know, uh, my, my, my teaching and my thinking it definitely helped. And it makes me like think about the question Reggie said is like, we can't hold them back. And sometimes you have to ask yourself, ask yourself the question, are they not progressing because I'm holding them back or because they can't really do it? And you don't know if you if you keep holding them back if you don't give them like those rigorous tasks or if you don't give them those those tasks that allow them to actually allow you to actually see what they know and don't know. So I I I'm afraid of snakes. I don't know how many people know this, but I'm afraid. Of snakes. <laughs> I think we all so, know. And, and <laughs> growing up, I I would not my, when I had my kids, I would not let my kids touch snakes or go near a snake or whatever. And we finally went to this park one time, uh, alligator park, and they had snakes there. And all of a sudden, there's an exhibit. And I'm like, no, don't, you don't want to, you're scared of snakes, you're scared of snakes. And my son finally looks at me and says, no, I'm not, Dad, I'm not. And he has this big anaconda over his neck. And, you know, I, I realized then that my fears was, was kind of infringed on them. I'm trying to tell them that, no, you, you really are afraid of snakes. And that, that sometimes we do that as teachers. We hold back. Uh, kids because of things that we are not comfortable with, right? If we wasn't good in word problems, we'd be like, oh, skip number nine because it's a word problem. So we got to <laughs> be able to recognize that and we got to be able to let them know that they're different. And so to this day, all three of my kids, they're, they're not afraid to touch a snake or to grab a snake. And, um, you know, 
they're on their own with that situation. <laughs> Change takes time. It's a marathon, not a sprint. I want to also be clear that the transformation from traditional to student-centered is really a long-term process. I'm guessing for you guys, as I know it was for me, it was, it was not an overnight thing. And Lamario, you even mentioned earlier, you know, you said that you put your students in groups, but you gave them the worksheet still. Um, so there were definitely failures along the way for me. I'm sure there were for you all as well. It's, it's definitely not an immediate, just, just I'm going to be this way and you're magically there. For me, I think I, I also probably changed or tried to change too much at first as well. I literally tried to do a complete 180 the first year when I realized I needed to be doing things differently and it almost killed me because there was really just so much logistically that I hadn't thought of or, you know, I would, I would think I'll do this, but then that didn't work like I thought it was going to. And I, it was just a lot of chances for me to just give up. So there was a lot of trial and error to figure out how it was going to work best for me and my students. I'm, I guess I'm wondering if, if you guys ever felt that way too, and what did you do when you wanted to give up? Um, yeah, I would definitely say I had some uh, some points of frustration. Um, I think coming in my first year, it was when not giving something enough time to actually work. So I may have switched everyone into groups, but uh, I tried it for three days, it didn't really work. So now like my biggest frustration is I should go back. It's like rows and columns. Mm -hmm. Or I tried this task, mm, didn't really work. Let me go back and try it again. Um, but I did have, I had a great group of teachers around me. Um, I, my school had a lot of Teach for America core members in there. So it was like really like one big family. So we would act, there would actually be people to come in my class just to observe, get feedback, but not in a way kind of like, hey, you're doing this wrong. Just kind of like, you know, if you like some advice, I'll come sit in. So I definitely had some people who definitely wouldn't let me quit with what I was doing. Um, and, for, and for people that I actually saw it was working for, it was just like, I know it can work, but how do I tailor my skills, my class and do this in a way that it's going to work for my students and myself? Yeah. Uh, my, your formula may not directly work for me, but how can I actually transfer it like to there? But I think um, one of the best pieces of advice someone gave me was you were switching too much. You're not giving anything a chance to actually work. And that's what it took for me kind of sitting through. And if I'm said I'm going to do groups, all right, we're going to do this for a good amount of time. And I was just the groups and everything along the way. But I'm not going to immediately give up on collaboration or collaborative learning. Like, I'm not going to give up on that. Like, that was like a non-negotiable. But how do I keep refining it? Is it now, do I pull in group roles? Does every student have a role? Is that one way for me to refine it? Or also, um, do I actually let students talk? Because I would put them in groups, say, hey, collaborate. But when it got too loud, nah, you guys are, mm -mm, it's too loud. <laughs> so like really getting comfortable with being uncomfortable in those situations. And I think like for me, like that's what it's like. I have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable and being okay with it not working as long as I was able to go back and adjust and try it again until it actually did work. Well, Lamar, it's funny you say that because when you're uncomfortable, then you're willing to make changes, right? When you, when you find yourself uncomfortable. But uh, most of the times when you try something and it doesn't work, what do you do? You go back to the same thing you've been doing before. Whether that's been working or not, you just go back to it. I think one of the uh, people I had in my life was uh, a master practitioner, Jenny Weir. And uh, she was a department chair. And she, 
you know, she she had a, a every teacher had a planning period, and she would she would ask every teacher to go and and check and see another teacher. When you get opportunity, go sit in on another teacher. And so I would go sit in on her, and she told me she says, Reggie, I want you, and I and because I knew her, and I I want I wanted to do what she did. She said, I want you to go and check out every teacher and then come back. And so she wanted me to see the styles of other teachers first, right? And then see how she handled things. And then I went back to my classroom and I wanted to teach the way she was teaching. And she came in to visit me. And she, the one thing she said to me, she says, Reggie, whatever you do, you have to make it your own. So however you teach, you take it and you make it your own. And I think that stuck with me for a long time because I can't teach the way she was teaching. I can't teach the style she was doing. I have to make it my own. And so when I make it my own, then, you know, I'm more vested in, in, in the progress and in the situation. So I decided to uh, start teaching and, and giving it a little twist that I would like or to have fun. Math should be fun. And so everything I did evolved around, you know, having fun in the classroom and making kids understand that math can be fun. And so it kind of changed my teaching style along with uh, collaboration. So Mario mentioned that too. The kids are sitting in groups and they're a group of four, but they're working individually. And so I had to get them to understand that you, I put you in a group so that you can work with each other, so you can talk with each other. And I had to say, guys, it's legal cheating. I mean, you guys all can have the same answer. You can give me a paper, four papers with the same answer because I know you work together. So why not make the best of it? And, and it took a lot of planning it took a lot of uh you know trial and error to get those groupings correct so yeah yeah i did advice from your fellow risk takers what would you guys say to a teacher who is currently in the process of trying to rebel you know against this idea that i have to do math class in rows and columns or on the stage on the stage but they don't know where to start, or maybe they don't have the resources that we had when we were starting. You know, what advice would you give someone who's just starting this journey? What should they do first? Start small. So instead of groups of four, maybe start with uh, elbow partners and see how that works. And then you can move into other, other parts of it as far as grouping. Um, I would say, kind of how I said before, get comfortable with being uncomfortable because it's going to be no matter how small that switch it is, it's going to be feel like an extreme switch in that moment while you're in the classroom. And find comfort in the fact that, hey, this is new, it's different, it may not go perfect, day one, that's fine. Remember, it's you're not really working for the short game, working for the long game, right? Because you're, yeah. you're thinking about changing your teaching lifestyle forever, not just a couple of weeks, not just for this year, but you're really transforming. And transformation is going to take time. And also, research. Look up what other teachers are doing. There are plenty of uh, blogs and plenty of different ideas out there online. Um, I'm sure, Casey, you just sent out plenty. Yeah. <laughs> but definitely do your research. Speaking of research and resources, I definitely want to talk about one of my favorite articles of all time called Never Say Anything a Kid Can Say. It was written by a teacher named Steve Reinhardt, and it was published in NCTM's middle school publication back in 2000. So it's a 20-year-old article but I feel like it's still so relevant today. I mean, I'll never forget the first time I read it. I was like, where has this been all my life? It was probably four or five years into my teaching career. There are just so many practical tips that he gives in the article. It's just, it's such a great resource for anyone trying to create a collaborative classroom. It's also available on the World Wide Web 
if you just Google never say anything a kid can say, you can download it via NCTM's website too for free. So, but I want to share an excerpt with you guys from the very beginning of the article, and then we'll, we'll chat about what it, what it evokes in us. So Steve says this, at some point during this metamorphosis, I concluded that a fundamental flaw existed in my teaching methods. When I was in front of the class demonstrating and explaining, I was learning a great deal myself, but many of my students were not. Eventually, I concluded that if students were to ever really learn mathematics, they would have to do the explaining and I the listening. My definition of a good teacher has since changed from one who explains things so well that students understand to one who gets students to explain things so well that they can be understood. I don't know about you all, but the first time I read that, it hit me so hard. Talk to me about what it means to you. I think there's a difference between learning math for yourself and teaching math. And so you definitely got to be able to understand what the kids are going to and how they experience mathematics. And so if you can get them to explain and justify their answer, then you know that they understand, they have a good understanding. So I think that's what he was trying to get at is getting kids to uh, explain and justify and not only his reasoning and justification, but getting them to explain to him. I think I read this article two times as a teacher. Like my first, the first time I read it was like during a summer training before I even started teaching. So of course it didn't really mean that much because I had no context really of like um, really teaching, teaching in, my, in a, my own classroom per se. But then the year after when I read it again, that's when it started to hit me, maybe maybe reflect on my first year. So like you're like, kind of like we were saying earlier, um, making that transformation of like, yeah, I taught this, I, I said all the key terms I wanted needed to say, I'm an expert in it, but finding that difference between showing the, the students that you're an expert and trying to make them experts. And a lot of that's done through, not yes. what you want to say, but what you can get them to say. Yes, that's so powerful. It's not about showing your students you're an expert. It's about making them the experts. I like it. Lamaria, you should write your own article. So there are tons of practical tips packed in this short read too. I'm wondering, what's your favorite tip that Steve gives? Mine would be title of the article. Never say anything a kid can say. I think yep. that's my, my favorite one. Um, even like for me, I was so, when, when students ask questions, once again, like showing my very first year, showing I'm the expert, I can answer your question. Oh, here's it, this is the answer versus, um, let me probe and see if you can actually bring it out of you, which is like what I have to transform it and actually be able to do, which is not very easy, but um, really not just directly answering questions for kids, but actually helping them arrive at their own answer like of that question. I think like that was, um, probably one of the things that resonated the most with me. And even like with the pencil, like now it's like, all right, I can't really hold a pencil in my hand or yeah. make myself not grab students' pencils to show them the example. Now, like kind of ask you the questions to help you arrive there and, and get you to write it down for yourself. I agree. Probing questions is, is very essential to students learning. So if you can get them to think about um, the answer instead of giving them the answers, because of course we can always give an answer but getting them to think and arrive at the answer by themselves, that's when you know the learning is taking place. Yeah. So Mario, you picked mine too. Never carry a pencil. <laughs> if I carry a pencil with me or pick up a student's pencil, I'm tempted to do the work for them. I mean, how many times did a kid yeah. go, I don't know how to do this? 
and I would grab their pencil and I was like, let me show you one. Cause I loved it. And honestly, they probably laughed. It was probably a joke. If you just tell her you don't know how to do it, she'll do three for you. Right. Like I had to come, I, had, I would walk after I read this article, I'd walk around with my hands behind my back because I was so tempted to grab a pencil. Are there other practical tips you guys would give teachers who are working to transform their classroom? I mean, I know, I know you said earlier, ready to start small and, and Lamario, you said, be patient with yourself. And um, I think both of you said, maybe begin with pairs instead of groups of four. But what other practical tips would you give folks who are in this process of transitioning from this rows and columns classroom to something that's more collaborative? What, what should these rebels do first? Reflection, uh, being able to jot down your ideas and your thoughts and the way you're feeling after uh, you've tried something new. And that way you can go back and reread how you felt and, you know, just some ideas you may have had. And if you were to reteach it again, what were some things you would change? What would you add? And you keep those things in your mind when uh, you teach the next lesson. Um, I would agree with that. Definitely agree. Um, reflection is one of the, the best things you can do as a teacher, especially um, with the process of starting something new or implementing something you haven't implemented before. Just reflecting on how well it went, um, students' reactions, everything, and like Reggie said, um, thinking about what you can adjust for the next time. Because there's never a time that it's, it'll just feel necessarily perfect. It's all right. What can I do to keep getting it better? Keep getting it better and better, and more efficient. One of the things I learned the hard way up front too was facilitating a collaborative classroom took a whole lot more planning up front than teaching traditionally. I remember the first few years, and I really, really, really hate to admit this, but I could easily show up on a random Wednesday because I knew the math and open up the teacher's guide to lesson 14.2, and I would know exactly which six or seven problems, sample problems I was going to work for students on my whiteboard, and then I would assign them one through 34, except skip number nine because it was a word problem. But transitioning to facilitating instead of lecturing takes a whole lot more work. There's a whole lot more involved in choosing the right task and doing the math up front so you know where that task is going and scripting the questions that you're going to ask students and anticipating student responses. There's just a lot um, that's involved in the planning up front. Um, it's a lot less work during the actual class period, but there's a lot more work um, involved in the upfront planning. Lamario, you said a few days ago to always, always, always do the math in the lesson and plan thoroughly beforehand. And I think that's so important. Doing that, doing the math is also extremely important. You also went on to emphasize the importance of this of doing the math, especially uh, for teachers who use Carnegie Learning materials. But I think that's also true for anybody who's trying to implement any kind of high-level task. Um, you also said it's, it's not just about doing the math either. It's also about understanding the full intent of and the connections within and across the content. So why do you guys think that planning is such an important thing when it comes to implementing classrooms like we're describing today? I think, um, like you just said, everyone knows that they need to do the math first to be able to teach the lesson. But knowing what came before what you're teaching, knowing what comes after, it's important for being able to actually make those connections for students to know that, all right, here's why you're learning this, or even you may, you may, you, it'll make you a better facilitator in a sense to where now you can teach from a viewpoint of 
all right, here's where they're going with this when they go to the next grade level or whatever's coming up next within this, this grade level. And knowing where they came from, you're kind of knowing, all right, so you're not just going back reteaching some of the same skills or same things over and over or just having a better understanding of what they technically probably should have came to you with. They probably, of course, not every student's going to come with that same level, but just knowing what they should have came with. And being able, for me, I think it was, which I didn't realize so later on, was just really just making those connections for students and helping them become more explicit for students. And the connection being more explicit for me, which made me a better, I think, facilitator overall. But just doing the, um, the math in general, um, I think, like, like I said, I think that's, of course, most important for you to be able to teach that lesson. But also one thing you mentioned was planning out your questions and making sure you have the right questions to ask. And be, the deeper you go with their questions, the more you can actually know what students actually learn. And planning out questions for different scenarios for me was a biggie, especially within the collaborative structure. Um, I think that was probably, it took the, that, that's what took the longest for me when planning, but it was probably where I got the most bang for my buck. Yeah, for me, if I didn't plan my questions up front, I would be tempted to take over and do the talking. Yeah. Because I wasn't prepared with, like, what do I do when a kid says, I don't understand this, or I don't know where to start, or what about this? And I would be attempted, I would, it was more tempting to explain than, I needed a, like a bank of questions to ask back when a student asked me for help. Not that I would never explain anything, I'm not saying that, but, but um, I definitely didn't want to immediately take over before they ever had a chance to think. And if I didn't plan my questions beforehand, and if I didn't know where the math was going beforehand, I could, it was more difficult to do that. I certainly did that wrong a lot of times before I figured out that the importance of the, the really deep planning part beforehand. Reggie, what do you think? I think preparation is the key to success. And so when you prepare, then uh, you prepare these questions and you're able to to see, like Lamario mentioned, what, what you have now and what's coming and then how that's gonna connect later on, I think you can definitely guide the students better when you know. And doing the math is so important because uh, especially when you're talking about the different components, you never wanna be in a situation where you don't understand or you get stuck, you don't wanna know what is being asked of you. And then now you have to stand up there and figure it out for yourself. That's either a problem on the board or either something as simple as looking at a math problem that you have never seen before. don't necessarily understand what it's asking you to do. And so you got you to gotta be prepared. But I, like all things, I think uh, in sports analogy, you have a game plan. And no matter what, then once the game starts, you just have to go with the flow. I tell the kids all the time, you know, hey, this is a game plan. This is what we prepare for. But something is going to come up that you did not expect, that we did not prepare for. And you just got to be flexible, and we're still going to make it through it. So uh, once the more you plan, the less those things come up. So I think planning is the key. Yeah, absolutely. I think Reggie said something pretty key, too. This kind of brings you back to your question about initial advice you to give teachers to who are becoming like rebels and, and rule breakers in a sense, but be flexible is definitely mm -hmm. thing to go on that list. So let's reflect. One of my favorite quotes of all time I actually heard at a literacy event, and I'm not even sure who to credit it to, so we'll just credit it to the world famous Anonymous. It's super short and really simple, and at the same time, it's packed with deep meaning. It goes like this. The one who does the talking does the learning. Just listen to that one more time. The one who does the talking 
does the learning. Simmer on that for a second. I think it brings back kind of what we what we kind of talked about before, especially I think the quote you read in the article um, about the teacher or who was saying, um, I was talking a lot or something like that, I'm paraphrasing of course, and I realized that I was the one doing the learning and I, I realized that I was becoming really good at math but my students weren't becoming really good at math or something to that effect. Um, kind of going there really hones back on the article of getting for me within education, getting your students to talk so they can be the ones to do the learning. Getting them to do the explaining and not just having you be that stage on the stage, always explaining, always there to immediately answer questions because the more you talk, the more and more you're giving everything out, you're just becoming more and more of an expert because you can repeat all these different things to your students. When your students start to actually be able to do that, you trans make that transference to where they're answering the questions, they're doing the talking, they're giving you the answers and explaining to each other and to you, I think that's when they become the, the experts? You know, for me, it's really about like, if the class period was 90% me talking and only 10% them talking, then they haven't had any opportunity to process or to critically think or to run ideas past each other to ask questions and make mistakes and talk about those mistakes. And I think it takes all of those things to actually learn. So if I'm doing all the talking or the vast majority of it, I'm just creating a bunch of robots who do what I do and think the way I think. But if I create a space where they are doing all of the talking or the vast majority of the talking, then I hopefully I'm giving them the opportunity to own the learning themselves, which I think in the end will create lifelong learners, which I think is the end goal for all of us. It's not really about can they regurgitate the quadratic formula it's more about can they critically think and correct when they make mistakes and be precise and all of those dangers for mathematical practice. So that brings me back to don't, don't talk too much because, uh, you know, if we do all the talking, then who's learning is the one who's doing all that talking. And so right. teacher and I'm standing there talking, talking, talking. I've learned a lot. Well, what have they learned? So, right. <laughs> It just brings me back, brings me back to night nightmares from my first year of just talking, talking, talking. Mm -hmm. <laughs>